What's up everybody, GenX Dividend Investor here. In this exciting video I show you my entire $2.8 million dividend portfolio that I've been building for about 30 years. You'll also learn which dividend stock I sold out of as well as two new ones I added along with one I intend to add. Finally near the end of this video I'll elaborate on why I made all the changes I did and will tell you a quick synopsis of my background for any new subscribers so I strongly encourage you to watch this from start to end. And if you appreciate videos where I go over my dividend portfolio, then please do me a favor right now and hit that thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click that bell notification. Okay, first I'll show you my portfolio in Fidelity, then after that I'll jump into my spreadsheet tool which does a better job of showing you a bunch of interesting things about my dividends. Oh, and before you leave me a comment telling me how I could make more dividend income if I had higher yielding stocks, then first watch this entire video so you can actually understand what's going on. Plus, if you're someone who gets irked by seeing a larger portfolio than yours, then let me tell you four uncomfortable truths about life that I once heard. Number one, comparing yourself to others is the biggest waste of your time. The reality is that there will always be people with larger portfolios than you, and smaller portfolios than you, and I'd probably rather trade my portfolio for your health. So appreciate what you have, not what you don't have. Number two, you can't make everyone happy, and if you try, you lose yourself. So while I recognize that a small percentage of people will feel irked that their portfolio is smaller, I hope a greater percentage of people walk away with the overarching goal I have with being transparent, which is that if you invest in decent stuff for a long period of time, that you too will be able to achieve financial success from your dividends that will help you out significantly in retirement. And that ties to the number three uncomfortable truth in life, which is that you should become okay with some people not liking you, because some people don't even like themselves. Finally, number four, if you want to be successful, then take 100% responsibility for yourself and try to avoid being annoyed by what others do or say or have. So instead of being turned off by the size of my portfolio, instead try to see if I share any tidbits of info you didn't know about that might help you succeed. Or try to be motivated by what I'm sharing, as it's something I know you too can achieve, even if you don't think it's possible right now. And with that out of the way, let's jump into my brokerage and fidelity. So here's a screenshot I took of my accounts after market close on Monday, April 10th. I've blocked out some info like account numbers and such. I have three dividend accounts in Fidelity, and as you can see they add up to about 2.8 million US dollars, and across all my accounts I was down 0.25% on that day, which equates to being down around 6,900 bucks. My first account is my IRA, where I have 1.2 million dollars of dividend stocks in it, and it isn't a Roth because Roths didn't exist when I started investing, and I made the mistake of not starting one when I found out about them. Next I have 1.4 million of div stocks in my taxable account and then $176,000 of dividend stocks in a retirement account for my wife that I manage. My wife's hourly jobs over the years often didn't have 401ks and I made the mistake of not focusing on building her retirement account that much as time went on. If you've been a subscriber to my channel for a while now then you know that I transferred from E-Trade to Fidelity around two years ago. And when you transfer, brokers sell all your fractional shares, which is why many of my positions today don't have fractional shares. The only ones that do are ones I purchased or added to since I switched brokers. I left my drip on for decades, but once my dividend income got more than my expenses I turned off my drips and started using dividends to pay all my bills, which happened two and a half years ago when I published a video called Huge Dividend News About My Portfolio. Anyways, Fidelity shows that overall, my two-year performance across all my accounts is positive 16.88%, which beats the SP500, which Google says was down 0.48% over the same time frame. Here's the two-year SP500 info. Back on Fidelity, we see that over 90% of my stocks are US-based. Okay, let's click on my taxable account. 
This is a summary view of it, and it says my taxable account's two-year return is 13%. And this shows that my one-year taxable account return is 1.72% versus the SP500 one-year return at minus 7.73%. Let's click on Positions and then Dividend View to see the stocks in my taxable account listed alphabetically. You'll find that I have many of the same stocks in my taxable and retirement accounts. So I have 19 stocks in this account, and you can see that they add up to 1.4 million US dollars. On the right hand side of the screen is the annual dividend income for this account, and we see that it's at $58,170. When I show you my portfolio in my spreadsheet, you'll see a more accurate view of my estimated annual dividend income because my spreadsheet is automatically updating based on changing currency rates, as well as because it compensates for dividend hikes that have been announced but not yet paid out. Okay, the first stock listed alphabetically in my taxable account is Apple. I have 408 shares of Apple worth 66 grand in this account, which is 4.71% of my taxable account. And we see that Apple has a tiny yield of 0.56% and its estimated annual income is $375. So definitely not a shower, but a grower. That's what she said. Now, a common question I frequently get is why don't I sell out of low yield stuff like Apple and put it into higher yield stuff like Jeppy or Devo or some other high yield stock so I can make more income. Well, if you want a nuanced answer, then watch a video I did called Why I Choose Not to Make $325,000 a Year in Dividends. The TLDR is that I've crafted a portfolio that hits a variety of goals and needs and risk tolerances of mine, and I frankly want more than just income. I also want growth, companies that can last, tax efficiency, broad sector coverage, many consecutive years of dividend growth, control over each of my positions, and a variety of other things that I believe will best deliver true passive income and generational wealth, along with fun along the way. Okay, and another common question I get asked if I use options like covered calls as a way to get more income. The answer is I used to, but no longer do, and you can watch a video I did called Why Dividends Are 10 Times Better Than Active Income, where I explain why. If you do want to get into options, then make sure you research and educate yourself before trying, and then go slow and stay small. Options are about probabilities and risk versus reward, and there's never anything that is guaranteed with investing, regardless of what you might hear. And another video you should watch if you're new to my channel is called The Time I Sold All My Stocks, which helps explain a lot about me and why I do what I do. Anyway, the next stock in this account is 68 grand worth of AbV, yielding $2,462 a year. Then is British American Tobacco, ticker BTI, at 92 grand, yielding $7,056 a year. BTI is an ADR as it's a British stock, and because of our tax treaty with them, they don't withhold international taxes on their dividends. In my spreadsheet, it will more accurately estimate that BTI yields me around $8,069 a year because I include the 6% hike that BTI recently announced, along with that compensate for the currency conversion between Great British Pounds to US dollars. And since currency constantly fluctuates, then BTI's actual amount varies from moment to moment. Then after BTI, it's about 31 grand of Colgate Palmolive, yielding 785 bucks a year. Then we have 78 grand of Chevron, yielding 28.20 a year. Next is 65 grand of Duke, yielding 26.41 a year. Then we come to a net new position in my portfolio, and that's Enterprise Products Partners, an MLP midstream company. Here's a useful screenshot of EPD on Seeking Alpha, which shows us that there are nine Seeking Alpha writers that have EPD as a strong buy, six at buy, two at hold, and then zero sells and zero strong sells. We also see that there are 13 strong buys among Wall Street analysts, and six buys and four holds and zero sells. And then there's this helpful section that shows what the bulls are saying about EPD, and in this case they pick three relevant articles, as well as what the bears are saying, of which there aren't any. The first article says Enterprise Products Partners LP meets all the criteria that Benjamin Graham developed for picking defensive stocks. 
Furthermore, it's currently about 25% discounted from the Graham PE. Then if you have a premium account like me, you can click into any article to see what all the authors said, and you can also read all the comments from the other members. The next bullish article starts by saying EPD offers investors a growing dividend, volume growth via exports, and a stellar management team. And the last article starts with, EPD is a steady performer with built-in mechanisms to continue its 24-year dividend growth streak. Expect an increase in growth rates due to internal capital projects and external LNG export growth. Back to Fidelity, you can see that I have about 127 grand of EPD, yielding $9,375 a year. Later in this video, I'll explain what I sold and why I moved into EPD. And for reference, I actually only own EPD in my taxable account because I didn't want to deal with UBIT issues. And you can watch my video called BDCs and MLPs and REITs, oh my, if you want to learn more about some of the pros and cons about MLPs like EPD. Okay, the next stock alphabetically in my taxable account is J&J, and I have about 110 grand of it, and it yields $3,019 a year. And now let me take a quick minute or two to talk about J&J. So recently someone was talking to me on my Discord about the Kenji spinoff, which should happen by the end of this year. And for those of you that are unaware, J&J is spinning off their consumer division, which is about 17% of their revenue, and will have products like Tylenol, Listerine, and Band-Aids. So Kenview kinda will look more like a Procter & Gamble or a Colgate-Palmolive, which actually trade for a higher multiple of earnings than J&J currently does. So it'll be interesting if this spinoff could be a 1 plus 1 equals 3 thing, aka if the two companies individually are valued more than they are combined. I normally sell spinoffs and plow that money back into the original, but I'm currently leaning towards keeping Kenview. It'll depend on how things play out. Anyways, part of the reason J&J seemingly is doing this is to separate the lower growth consumer unit from the higher growth segments. Now a lot of folks think that the reason J&J is splitting off Kenview is to put all the talcum lawsuits and issues into it. And for reference, what I believe will happen is that once this goes through, then your brokerage will have new Kenview shares at some multiple relative to how many J&J shares you have. So how can you find out more info about this? Well, let me show you one way how I'll research that which also helps explain why I'm a Seeking Alpha Premium member. I value Premium Seeking Alpha's articles and comments so much that I literally never buy or sell a stock anymore without reading up on what Alpha has. Now the free version lets you see the titles of articles, and in this case I see one that I'd like to read titled, Kenview IPO still leaves Johnson & Johnson with most of the talc liabilities, an update. I also see that there are over 100 comments on it, which signals to me that it's probably worth reading to understand what all the subscriber input is about. Unfortunately, a free account can't read all the articles, so I'll switch over to my premium account that I've put in dark mode. This particular article was written a month ago by someone named Deep Value Ideas, who has a little over 5,000 followers on Seeking Alpha. I'll read the summary first. It says, To limit the legal liabilities related to talc, Johnson & Johnson has adopted a strategy that ensures pending cases are heard in bankruptcy court. At least that's the goal. The article explains why, contrary to popular belief, that most of the talc-related legal liabilities are not being spun off along with J&J's consumer health segment operations. In addition, the article provides an update on the situation, given J&J's recent setback with respect to its proposed plan to manage the claims through a bankrupt subsidiary. The author also explains how he intends to proceed with his substantial J&J position. While skimming the article, I saw one paragraph worth quoting which said, While this now sounds like J&J has transferred the claims to the soon-to-be-separated consumer health company Kenview, making it potentially a toxic investment, the reality is quite different. Kenview will indeed assume liabilities related to talc, but only with respect to claims outside the U.S. and Canada, while J&J will continue to carry the liabilities in the U.S. and Canada through its subsidiary LTL management, that is if it goes through. According to the document, 
The US and Canada claims represent the vast majority of all talc-related claims. In this way, they're trying to settle the claims through a bankrupt subsidiary, limiting J&J's exposure to approximately $2.4 billion and leaving Kenview with the claims arising from litigation related to talc-containing products sold outside the US and Canada. Of course, it should be noted that Kenview also faces litigation risks related to its over-the-counter products. The article continues on. Now, new information has come up because J&J is trying various maneuvers in court, some of which is getting pushed back on, so where we end up is still TBD. So it's not that the articles are always correct or can predict the future, but I really find the information valuable. Regardless, I'm staying along with J&J for now because I think the risk is manageable, but that's just me. You never know where lawsuits can go, so stay on top of it. Things could dramatically shift as time goes on. Articles like that are often written by people who are passionate about investing, so there's a wealth of information you can read up on. And then the comments in response to the articles are also very valuable, because again, these are often passionate investors either disagreeing with what was said or sharing their own experience with something in the article or whatever. I can't understate how useful I found those articles. I've been paying for premium for multiple years at a price of $239 a year, and I've always felt that the value I've received from it, net-net, was worth more than I was paying for it. And I recently signed up to become an affiliate with them because I use and love their website, and they currently have a promotion running where new subscribers can use my link, and then sign up for premium access for only $99 a year, and then after that it goes up to whatever their normal price is, though you can always cancel. So it's basically only $8.25 a month for 12 months, which is very worth it, at least in my opinion. Anyways, back to my stocks. After J&J, I have almost thirty-one grand of Kimberly Clark in my taxable account, and it yields $1,071 a year. Then fifty-four grand of Coke yielding one thousand five hundred and seventy-six dollars a year. Then forty-six grand of McDonald's yielding nine hundred and seventy-eight dollars a year. Then one hundred twenty-six grand of MO yielding ten thousand six hundred and thirty-seven dollars a year. Then one hundred eight grand of Microsoft yielding a thousand seventeen dollars a year. Followed by eighty-two grand of Pepsi yielding twenty sixty a year. Then forty-seven grand of Procter and Gamble yielding eleven hundred dollars a year. Then sixty-five k of Philip Morris yielding three thousand three hundred seventy-three dollars a year. Then eighty-seven grand of SCHD yielding three thousand seven hundred fifty-four dollars a year. Then thirty-three grand of Southern Company yielding one thousand two hundred thirty-two dollars a year. And finally eighty-eight grand of Exxon Mobil at two thousand seven hundred ninety-five dollars a year. Okay, now let's quickly take a look at my other accounts in Fidelity before switching to my spreadsheet. Here's my IRA summary. You can see I stopped adding cash to my IRA when I retired on my dividends, so I have zero dollars contributed into it in 2022 or 2023. You can also see that my one-year IRA return is 0.66%, as compared to the SP500, which is down 7.73%. And you can see my two-year return with my IRA is up 15.16%, as compared to the 0.48% loss of the SP500. So in this retirement account, I have 1,330 shares of Apple worth 215 grand, and which yields $1,223. My estimated annual dividend income in this account is covered up by that chat icon thing. So let me scroll down a bit. Okay, so now we can see that this IRA is worth $1.228 million, and it yields $33,271 of dividend income a year. And you longtime subscribers may have noticed another net new position of mine in the screenshot. Though this one is only in my retirement account, and that's Toronto Dominion Bank ticker TD, and you can see that I have about 47 grand of it, and it yields $2,279 in this account. Later in the video, I'll explain how and why I got into TD. Feel free to take a screenshot if you want to see all the specifics in this account, but I'm going to move on now since I'll be showing you the total of each of my stocks in my spreadsheet. But first, let's quickly take a look at my other retirement account. 
Here you see that I only have a few stocks in this account and it's worth 176 grand and it generates $7,237 a year in dividend income. So if you add up my dividend income across my three accounts, you'll find that it comes to $98,678, but a more accurate estimate is the one in my spreadsheet at $98,857, a number which changes every 15 minutes due to real-time currency fluctuations. Okay, now let's jump into my spreadsheet tool. As most of you know, my spreadsheet is something I sell as one of the monthly benefits I give to my Patreon aristocrats and kings, but I'm unfortunately currently sold out. If you refresh my Patreon page every so often, then I'm sure you can snag a seat. Okay, I've zoomed in a bit and hidden some columns so you can see all my stocks on two pages, so here are the first 14, and I'll show you the next 13 after these. I've got this sorted based on largest positions first, and it aggregates all the shares across my three accounts. The color of the tickers, as well as the pay date and dips per pay period, all automatically update based on the stock's pay date. So if it's highlighted in green, it means it's paying out today. If it's a cyan color, that means it's paying out within a week, and if it's highlighted in yellow, it means it's paying out within a month. If there's no highlight, it means the payout is over a month away. As someone who lives on their dividends, I find having that quick visual indicator a useful reminder. My dividend yield column is highlighted in green if it's greater than or equal to 4%, and then the price columns in the middle highlight green or red, depending on if the amount is positive or negative for the day. You can see that I have 1,738 shares of Apple in total, which is about 10% of my overall portfolio, and I have a guideline where I don't like any position to get too much larger than 10%, Though Apple is one of the crown jewels, so I'd probably make an exception for it. So across my accounts, I have 281 grand of Apple, and it yields $1,598 in dividends per year. Those middle columns are for prices, including daily change in dollars, daily change percentage, and the daily dollar change of that position in the portfolio. So like Apple went down 1.65%, which means my portfolio went down $4,727 due to Apple that day. My next largest position is another low-yielding growth-oriented stock in Microsoft at 227k, which is 8.1% of my portfolio and which is yielding about $2,100 a year. Then Realty Income at 172k worth, which is 6.1% of my portfolio, and it generates $700 a month in dividends. Nice. Then Altria at 5.9% of my portfolio, generating almost $14,000 a year. Sin for the win, I guess. I wouldn't invest in Altria if I was a young person trying to grow my net worth but as a retired person I feel the short and medium term risk is reasonable. Then is J&J at 5.7% of my portfolio and yielding $4,370 a year. Then AbbVie is 5.4% of my port, then PEP at 5%, ExxonMobil at 4.9%, EPD at 4.5%, McDonald's at 4.1%, Procter & Gamble at 4.1% of my portfolio, Duke Energy is 3.8%, Coca-Cola is at 3.7%, and then BTI is about 3.6% of my portfolio. Okay, now I'll scroll down to the last page of my stocks. Here we see SCHD at 3.1% of my portfolio, and I recently added a bit more to it with the various changes I'll talk about shortly. Then Chevron is 3% of my portfolio. Southern Company is 2.9%. Kimberly Clark is 2.7%. Philip Morris is 2.3%. Goldman Sachs is 2.1%. Colgate Palmolive is 1.8%. Toronto Dominion is 1.7%. Caterpillar is 1.6%, Starbucks is 1.2%, Home Depot is about 1%, Travelers Companies is almost 1%, and Pfizer is just 0.74%. I should probably consider moving some of those smaller positions into SCHD or something. At the bottom of this page you can see I have 31,000 shares of stocks, and my portfolio is valued at $2.807 million, and it makes $98,849 a year in dividends, and my portfolio's average weighted starting yield is 3.52%. If I scroll to the right, we can see that my portfolio's average weighted 3-year dividend CAGR is 7.25%.
Then I have a column where my spreadsheet automatically goes out and looks up how much a company pays out in dividends each year called dividends per share per year. And then to the right of that column is where you can override the automatically found dividends and you can put in your own value. So being able to do that serves multiple purposes. First, if a company announces a hike or a cut, then you can put it in immediately rather than wait for websites to pick it up, which can take weeks or even months. That way you can see how your estimated annual dividend income will change right away rather than waiting for a while. Another reason I have a manual field is because it gives me a visual indication when a hike or cut happened because I highlight both the automatic cell and the manual cell of a ticker if the values are different. So what I normally do is set my manual amount to the automatically found amount and so when something is highlighted then that tells me that there's a difference between the two. So if I open my spreadsheet and something is highlighted then I know either a hike or cut happened or it means that I manually set one to be different than the other. Like in this case my automatic cell says Pepsi is paying $4.60 per share per year and I put in $5.06 in the manual cell because I know that Pepsi just did a 10% dividend hike, which my automated process hasn't found yet. Or like the BTI automatic versus manual cells are different because I store values in British currency and then automatically multiply them by dynamically updating currency fluctuations to more accurately estimate what my payout should be. Toronto Dominion is also automatically adjusted for currency. And then to the right of those columns is PE, and at the bottom you can see that my portfolio's average weighted PE is 23.1, so things are still spendy on average. I need to update my spreadsheet at some point to not use PE for REITs and MLPs and such. Then moving to the right, we have a stock price chart mini graph depicting how prices have moved in the last year, which is red if it's down or green if it's up, all relative to where it was a year ago. Then to the right of that is a new column we just added to our development spreadsheet, and that's earnings date, which follows the same highlighting pattern as the payday column. So we can see that the company's earnings dates highlighted in yellow means that they're going to be announcing earnings within the next month. Next to that is a column of betas, and you can see that my portfolio's average weighted beta is 0.67, which I like, aka nice and low. Okay, now I'll scroll a bit to the right to see the calendar view. So this shows the last six months of dividends I've gotten, and then today's month is in the middle highlighted in green, aka April of 2023, and then to the right are all the future months with estimated payouts I should be getting. So whenever the values on the right months are higher than the ones on the left side, that means either I bought more shares or they did a hike. On the bottom of each column are the sum of the dividends in that month. So from April going forward, you can see that I get about $7,000 in dividends, then almost $8,300 dividends, then $9,400, and then it repeats $7,8300-9400. You might ask why this total on the right is at $95,579 as opposed to $98,800, and that's because the $95K value represents 6 months of actuals plus 6 months of announced futures, whereas the $98,800 amount is 12 months of futures. Futures are all announced hikes, it isn't assuming hikes will happen, so it's basically what will happen based on announced data. Moving down in the spreadsheet a bit, we have some interesting data. This top part shows how my dividend income should grow over time if I have my drips turned off, which is the top row, versus drips turned on, which is the bottom row. I currently have my drips turned off, but my dividend income will probably grow somewhere between those two lines since I manually reinvest a small portion of the dividends in my retirement account. Anyways, looking at the no drip row, we see I'm currently estimated to make $98,840 a year. Those numbers dynamically update as currency updates, so sometimes a number might be in the process of updating, so it could be different than on another part of the screen. Anyways, then I show year-over-year -year growth estimates of my dividend income, assuming historical CAGRs hold in the future, which means that a year from now I'd be at 106k of dividend income with no drip, or 109k if I was dripping. Breaking into the six-figure mark for true passive income in a conservative blue-chip dividend portfolio has been a long-time goal of mine, so that'll be fun to see. 
If we jump to the year 10 in these estimates, it says I'll be making about 200 grand a year dividend income with no drip, or 277-ish grand if the drip was on. Then if we scroll to the right a bit more, we see estimates going out to year 30 and beyond. And hopefully it's obvious that the further you go out, the less likely the estimates are to be accurate. But for giggles, we can see that if the Kagers hold, then at year 30 I'd be making $806,000 a year without reinvesting my dividends, or a bit over $2 million a year if I was dripping. I also just added the ability to adjust your dividend income growth estimates by inflation and taxes, but I won't bother showing you that for now. And then this is a graph that represents the first 10 years of those dividend growth estimates, and you can see how the red drip grows faster than the blue no-drip graph due to faster compounding. And then here's the graphical representation of that full 35 years. Then I have this chart that estimates that I'll make about $8,200 a month in dividends on average, which is $1,901 a week, or $270 a day, or $11.29 an hour, every hour, year-round. So if I go to sleep for 7 hours and wake up, then I'll have made another $70 while sleeping. But it's actually more than that if you're trying to convert a pure hourly income number into an hourly wage number, since wages tend to take out more in taxes, and because you tend to work only about 20-25% of the total possible hours that exist. So a wage hour is multiple times more than a pure hourly number. Thus, it's kind of like saying I'm making 63 bucks an hour if it was from a 9 to 5 job. Then again, it would actually be less than that since a portion of my dividends are in retirement accounts, which would get taxed and penalized if withdrawn early. Whatever it is, you can't beat true passive income. Okay, here's a graph that is dynamically created that shows my portfolio value by sector. So you can see how tech is my biggest sector at 18%, followed by consumer staples at 17%, and then energy at 12.5%, and then healthcare at 11.8%, and then SIN stocks at 11.7%. I used to be around 15% SIN stocks, so part of the changes I purposely made was to lower my SIN stocks a bit. And then one sector I plan to grow as time goes on will be industrials. My current thought is to slowly DCA into Union Pacific, ticker UNP, as I'm confident they'll be chugging along for my life and beyond, and it and Warren Buffett's BNSF are the two largest players in the US. Moving on, here's a portfolio value by ticker graph. So Apple is at 10%, then Microsoft at 8.1%, etc. You can see my new tickers are EPD at 4.5% of my portfolio, and TD at 1.7%. And then here's a passive income percentage by sector graph, and you can see that SIN stocks are at 25%, and then energy is at 17%, and then staples at 13.8%, and healthcare is at 10.8%. I've taken my financials up to 4.7% with a TD addition, and maybe I'll take that up a bit more if TD stays inexpensive. My tech sector is obviously more about growth than income, and it's also a safety valve I can pull to convert into higher yield stuff if I need to. Like let's say Altria did a dividend cut, then I could just move some Apple and or Microsoft or whatever into higher yielding stuff to compensate for the cut. Moving on, here's a passive income percentage by ticker graph, where Altria is the big boy at 14%, then EPD at 9.5%, then Realty Income at 8.5%, etc. There are a bunch of other useful tools and graphs in my spreadsheet product. Like this is a tool called the Dividends Received Tracker, which shows your dividends you've gotten over time so you can see how it trends up or whatever. So like my Realty Income Entry shows that I've not received my dividend yet for April, but my March one was 665 bucks, and then my February one was 639 bucks, and then 629 in January. And then if I look a few months to the right, we see that in July of 22 it was at $321, and it keeps going back in time from there. So the dividend income gets smaller as we go back in time due to less shares and lower dividend payout amounts. Note, my May Realty Income dividends will be 700 bucks because I recently bought some more shares of it with some of the changes I'll tell you about shortly. You gotta love how quality dividends tend to keep trending up, pushing your annual income up. Which reminds me of an interesting comment I've gotten in the past, which is from people who say that they couldn't live on only 60 or even 90 grand a year, which is both kinda understandable and kinda not. 
I mean, I like for my family to live relatively frugally, and we're in a low-cost area. Though I can understand how some people are living in big cities, and maybe they drive expensive cars and god knows what else. And not only do I live frugally, but I also scored a 30-year fixed mortgage at only 2.625%, so my housing outlay is quite manageable, and housing is often people's biggest expense. But I think if you'd ask most people in the US, then you'd find out that they would do just fine with 90 grand a year. The reality is that the median household income in the USA, per the Census Bureau, is at 71 grand a year before taxes. Let's conservatively assume that 20% taxes are taken out, which means that the median household is 56 grand that they can use to pay their bills and do whatever with. Since there are about 120 million households in the US, then I'd estimate that about 60 million households have less than 56 grand a year post-tax to use. My taxable account alone generates a little over 58 grand a year of mostly qualified dividends, with the non-qualified portion coming from EPD. And fortunately, I think I'll owe zero tax on EPD distributions for over a decade, if my math is right. The nice thing is that a married couple can make over $100,000 a year of qualified dividends in a taxable account and owe $0 in federal income taxes, assuming they don't have wage income. Now on top of that, I've got other income coming in beyond my taxable account. Specifically, my retirement accounts generate another $40,000 a year in dividends, though I do pay normal wage income taxes when I take my dividend cash out of my retirement accounts, and I pay a 10% tax penalty as well. Still, that's like another twenty-five grand plus of post-tax income coming in when I want it. My plan for 2023 is to spend the majority of my retirement dividends and then reinvest the portion I don't use. I could do a 72T if I wanted to avoid the 10% early withdrawal penalty, and you can watch a video I did called Secrets to Withdrawing Early from 401ks and IRAs for more context. For now, I'm not doing a 72T as I'd rather just see how things pan out, but if I can convince my wife to move overseas, then I'll probably do a 72T now rather than wait. Or if I just wanted to raise our standard of living more, then I'd consider doing a 72T now. Anyways, I can't tell you how cool it's been to finally take dividend cash out of my IRA, because I've only been putting assets into it for around 30 years. Imagine doing anything for three decades and not getting any benefit, other than maybe some mental health benefits from knowing your nest egg is increasing, along with knowing I could always use it in emergency scenarios. And since most of you probably have never taken any dividend cash out of your IRA, I'll tell you how it works in Fidelity. You just use the normal function to transfer cash between accounts, but if you select a retirement account, then it asks you if Fidelity should withhold any for taxes, and I personally don't have them withhold any. What I did was create an interest-bearing account that I use for my current year's taxes, and then when I take my retirement dividend cash out, I put a portion of that cash into my taxes account to cover me. I don't do that for my taxable account dividend cash, just for my retirement ones. Now beyond my dividends, I also get some income from my social media business, which also means I pay tax on that income, and a nice part of having my own business is that I can deduct a bunch of expenses that I'd otherwise still need to spend and not deduct. The reality is that my dividends cover my expenses, and I do YouTube to educate anyone willing to listen. I think my purpose in life right now is to share the word about how amazing dividend passive income can be for everyone out there, and the more I can influence people to invest intelligently, the happier it makes me. I'm not doing YouTube for money, I'm doing it to influence the world to invest intelligently. But another goal I have is to show my kids how to grow an online business from scratch, so seeing my social media income go up is helpful, not because I need it, but because it tangibly shows my kids how hard work over a long period of time can get great results. So the TLDR is that it's been pretty amazing seeing my dividend income and portfolio value trend up, even though I'm spending almost all my dividends on bills. I way prefer that versus selling shares, and worrying that I'd outlive my portfolio. Okay, now let's transition to me telling you a bit about my background, and then I'll explain why I made the various changes to my portfolio. So I've always been a pretty private person, and remaining private frees me to talk about things over the internet that I'd otherwise not be comfortable sharing. I'm self-made, never won a lottery or been given a dime, and in fact started with a negative net worth since my wife had a bunch of debt when we got married. 
My first job was as a programmer in the 90s after I graduated from college, and eventually I moved into technology management. The reason I started investing was because a guy I respected at my first job recommended I should invest, and other programmers at work used to talk about investing in Microsoft and stuff like that, so it also influenced me. Ironically, my dad used to say that the stock market was like gambling, so he wasn't a fan of it, and to this day my parents have zero dollars invested in stocks. Over time, I got more into investing and actually started a stock investment club with some friends in the 90s, where we'd meet up for dinner and chat about what stocks we should invest in, and we had a minimum amount each person had to invest each month, and we formalized the whole thing as a company since real money was involved. After the dot-com bomb hit, our investing company was dissolved, and to this day some of those guys still don't invest. I've been investing for about 30 years now, and about half my current portfolio just came from steady Eddie 401k contributions, which I'd roll over into a retirement account when I left jobs, and the other half came from deposits into a taxable account over a long period of time. I rarely maxed out my retirement accounts over the years because I didn't make that much for a long time, so the amount I contributed wasn't anywhere near the annual caps, and honestly I was more interested in cars and travel and gaming than I was with investing. Whenever I came into bigger amounts of cash, like from selling a house, then I'd often invest that as a lump sum. You can watch a video I did called How to Become a Millionaire if you want to hear more specifics on my journey. Anyways, I've got a lot of experience with all sorts of assets over the decades and came to prefer passive dividend no stress income over anything else. I've been married for over two decades now and have an awesome wife and two great kids. I retired two years ago when my dividend income made enough money to cover my expenses and I started my YouTube channel initially as a way to teach my kids about how to invest as well as to show them how to build an online business. Beyond investing, I also love working out and playing video games and watching movies. I'm really passionate about dividend investing, and while nothing is a guarantee, I'm living proof that it works. There are countless misconceptions about dividends out there, so that also drives my passion to educate the world. Dividends feel like a cash tree which just keeps growing. So your takeaway should be to live a frugal life, invest non-stupidly, and I'm pretty sure you'll be winning in the long run. Okay, so now I'll go into what changes I made and why, though I won't go into an extensive analysis because this video is already too long. So one thing I wanted to do was lessen my sin stock percentage in my portfolio, so I trimmed a bit of those profits. Also, if you watched my videos for a while, then you'd know I've been thinking of selling out of some very small positions, especially the ones that I don't believe in as strongly, and so Leggett and Platt was one I sold out of. I saw it as one of my least compelling long-term stocks, so I decided it made sense to move it into other things. My guess is that Leg will continue plodding along, but I felt I could do better long-term with things like Toronto Dominion. Beyond that, I decided that I wanted to diversify my energy holdings a bit, especially because I had made a huge return in a short time frame, and I know how cyclical oil can be. So selling some oil profits near all-time highs, and then going into something that I calculated was underpriced, like EPD, seemed compelling to me. EPD is going after a variety of projects that I think will be very profitable, like their $2.5 billion proposed Seaport Oil Terminal. I also like that its credit rating was raised to A-, which is the highest rated pipeline company I found from the 15 I looked at. Its financials look solid and 2023 should mark their 25th consecutive years of dividend increases. I don't think they can be added to the official SP500 dividend aristocrat list though, because I think MLPs are excluded from the SP500, but they'll still be part of other dividend aristocrat lists. Anyways, would I have my kids buy into EPD? Probably not. I actually bet that they could make some relatively short-term profits on it but I'd rather they focus on investing with decades in mind. Now, would I recommend it for people looking for income? Yeah, I probably would, given you understand the risks and are okay with them. Now, one obvious question is how much will the drive towards renewables impact a company like EPD? Well, my guess is that EPD will probably have a decade or two to figure out how to evolve as fossil fuel usage decreases. Speaking of renewables, EPD is expanding their service offerings and is planning to provide carbon dioxide transportation and storage from oil companies like Occidental, which should be another revenue generator for them. 
See, don't you feel good being so green by investing in EPD? Great, now I gotta deal with a flood of comments telling me why pipeline companies aren't green. Anyways, the EPD has regulatory and political risks, industrial accident risk potential for cleanups, along with, of course, litigation risks. On the upside, I'm guessing that due to the Russia-Ukraine war, Europe will have a preference for staying away from Russian oil and natural gas, and the US will move to service those needs, thus companies like EPD can prosper. Also, EPD seems to care more about volume of oil usage than current barrel price, which may provide some diversity away from the cyclicality of oil prices, though there is some correlation between price and usage. And I've never owned an MLP before, and I wanted first-hand experience to see how the whole K1 tax form actually plays out. And bottom line, EPD has been a very strong midstream company, moving some oil profits into this pipeline stock that I calculated is cheap and has a great yield, all made sense for my needs and risk tolerances. Note, I believe if you own MLPs via an ETF, then I think you can avoid dealing with K1s. Anyways, I jumped into EPD with 4.6% of my portfolio, which is mid-size for me. I believe its distributions should be even more tax-efficient than qualified dividends for at least a decade, which is also something I found compelling and wanted hands-on experience with verifying. Now, for now, I'm still bullish on Exxon and Chevron, especially as carbon recapture becomes a potentially huge opportunity. I also tossed a bit of cash at SCHD to grow that position a tad. Beyond that, I've been thinking about upping my financial sector, and so Toronto Dominion seemed compelling. First, because I calculated that it's quite on sale right now, and it allows me to move into a company that is headquartered outside the US, but still has a presence here, aka diversifying my exposure a bit. Plus, I've wanted to verify that I could hold a Canadian company in my retirement account, and not have them withhold taxes on dividends. Now, I've not been a fan of US financials since the 2008 crisis, so I like the idea of expanding into a Canadian banking stock, as their system is quite different from the US's, and arguably better. Toronto Dominion has been a dividend payer since 1857, which is insane to think about. It's had steady revenue and earnings growth since the financial crisis, and has a large US segment focused on consumer and commercial banking. I recently talked about wanting to get into either TD or RY or BMO, and my good price for TD was $64, and under that was a great price, so I ultimately decided to buy in while it was trading in the 50s. Now all stocks have risks, even Canadian banks. Like one risk is mortgages and rates and people defaulting, but one of the nice things I've read is that it seems like most Canadian banks are allowing their customers with variable rates to extend their mortgages while keeping their monthly payments the same, which is win-win as it provides the bank with ongoing revenue as well as a win for customers to not default and be out of their house. Some Canadian banks are allowing for deferrals for a while, with varying options to manage those delayed payments. Beyond mortgage risks or general Canadian debt issues, so like anything, be careful. And of course, some people are confident that the world should be teetering on the brink of a massive recession, so do you really want to be delving into financials given that? I am, because I see a great entry price for a great company, but I'm also okay if it falls from here. Will we have a worldwide recession? I have no idea, and too many times I've learned that the world is too unpredictable, so as long as I buy on discount and plan to hold for generations, then I'm not too worried if I buy and it falls a bunch. That being said, if my financials started cutting their dividends and or not raising them, then I'd probably get out of those stocks and move into other things. Plus, I've invested a relatively small amount into TD, so it's quite a manageable risk for me. Regardless, we all have different goals, risk tolerances, etc., so don't do what I do, which is one of my most important points in this video, which is don't blindly copy what I'm doing or what any YouTuber does. I don't want you to rush out and buy EPD now just because I did. I don't want you to trim your sin stocks just because I did. AKA, what I want you to do is to listen and learn, then do what makes sense to you. If you want to buy EPD because it fits your needs, great. If you don't, great. I have zero interest in pitching a stock or influencing you to invest in something I invest in. What I do care about is that you invest, and invest not stupidly, and that you do that for the remainder of your life. 
And with that, I'd like to close things down and remind you not to forget about my Seeking Alpha referral link. I'd also like to thank Brewer, who just boosted my Dividend Discord server. Which reminds me, I highly recommend that you join my free Dividend Discord chat server, which has over 10,000 dividend investors on it from over 70 countries around the world. Finally, if you made it this far in the video, then please hit the thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet, and click that bell notification. Thanks for watching, stay positive, and I'll talk to you again real soon. I am not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I am only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.